John 19, 38. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, besought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate allowed him or gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloe, about a hundred pound weight. Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths and spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. I want to speak to you tonight on the subject, the making of a disciple. Second lesson, you won't see this as a subtitle, but I want to focus on patience with the process. And you can be seated. Thanks for standing so long. Patience with the process. So I have a picture in my mind of a disciple of Jesus Christ, what that disciple should look like. And I have to admit that my picture of a disciple of Jesus Christ is more of a finished product, like a a beautiful painting more than a blank canvas. So I want you to please picture the person that you would call a disciple of Jesus Christ. And hopefully it's a, it could be a long list. It could be a lot of people. But someone that you would consider as a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple of His. What is that person like? Now I know you're going to say they're like Jesus because they're a disciple. But the person that first comes to your mind as a disciple of Jesus Christ How long have they been following Jesus? A month? A year? A decade? Have they been following Jesus for decades? Next week I hope to talk about the marks of a mature disciple, the marks of maturity in a disciple of Jesus Christ. But in reality, no one ever started following Jesus at the point of perfection, right? So the person that we would consider a disciple of Jesus Christ, person that would pop in our mind is probably someone who is a mature disciple of Jesus Christ, who demonstrates marks of maturity in their lives. But no one starts that way, although they may be a follower of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was blameless in the Jews' religion, but he had to begin again when he followed Jesus Christ. But Paul as a Jew being raised on the Old Testament really had an advantage because of the moral teachings of the Bible. Romans 3 asked the question, what advantage then has the Jew? Well, the Jews had a lot of advantages, but Paul said much every way. They had many advantages, but chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. And all the Bible quizzers that studied the book of Romans memorized that verse. The Jews were advantaged by having the Bible, the Old Testament Scripture. They could go to synagogue every Saturday and study how to be a better follower of Jehovah God. So if you were a Jew, you could say that you had a head start. More than a Gentile who came to Jesus with no biblical worldview and no moral framework at all. I was thinking about some of the insights that The Apostle Paul gave in the book of Ephesians concerning the difference between the Jews and the Gentiles. He said, remember 
that you being in the time past Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcised, circumcision by those that are called circumcision. In other words, the Jews who practiced circumcision called you, looked down on you and called you the uncircumcision, you Gentiles. He said that that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. This is Ephesians 2.12. And strangers from the covenants of promise. They didn't know about the Ten Commandments. They did not have the law, the prophets, the poetry books. They had none of that at all. They came right out of a raw world of paganism. Paul said you were strangers from those covenants of promise. You were having no hope and without God in the world. When the New Testament church was launched and spread past Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and began to spread to the uttermost parts of the earth, you think carefully about the kind of people that were coming to God and why some of the things needed to be written in the New Testament epistles, those letters to the church, because many of these people were raw. They had nothing, no framework, no moral moorings in the Bible or in the way they were raised. They were far off, Paul said, from Christ. They were really out there a long, long way. Now, in a similar way, those of us who were raised in the church, now I'm going to pause right now and say I know a lot of people who were raised in the church, they live like the devil and are out of the church. So it doesn't mean that you'll be saved because you were raised in the church. But in a similar way that the Jewish people had the, the oracles of God. Those of us who grew up on Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, have a lot of advantages in living for God because of what we knew. Similar to Timothy that I referred to on Sunday, that from a child he knew the Holy Scriptures that were able to make him wise unto salvation. But much like the pagans of New Testament times, in our culture now, in America, modern America, in Western Europe, in many parts of the world, we have people that come to the church, come to the cross of Jesus Christ. And they are like those people who were aliens. They did not know the covenants. They may have never owned a Bible or read a Bible, and they may not know anything about God at all. And to those people, maybe a starting point is not going to John 3.16 because they may not even have any comprehension. But maybe it is being in a church service where the power of God unmistakably moves on their heart and they feel something that they cannot explain and they cannot describe it. They cannot deny it. And from there, the, the spirit that they feel has to have some rationale behind it. There was a person here Sunday, I'll make this real generic, I went and spoke to them and I'd met them before, once before I believe, maybe more than once, but they've never attended church here to my knowledge. But as I talked to them, they spoke about feeling something like some joy and some sadness. And I said, well, I could explain what that is, you know. I understand conviction, right? When the Holy Ghost begins to make you feel like you need to repent. And you may not be able to explain you know, the Romans 3.23 or 6.23 or 5 and 8 and lead them down the Roman road to repentance, but it is a starting point. So I'm talking tonight about the making of a disciple and patience with 
the process. To many people in our culture, we need to be aware of that starting point and then their next steps. Where are they right now? Let's find that common ground, wherever that is, wherever they are, so we can lead them to holy ground. That's the philosophy or approach of our church. And to think about where that person may be. If a person embraces the apostolic message, they obey Acts 2.38. They may be like the Jews who were very near, like Apollos who was mighty in the scripture and he just need the, needed the way explained a little more perfectly or completely. He needed to be baptized in Jesus' name and to receive the Holy Ghost. But he was already mighty in the scriptures and all they had was the Old Testament. So when Apollos came to God, he was good to go. He was ready to start defending and preaching. He was an apologetic for the gospel. But then there were those people, and there are those people today, who are like pagans that are so far away from God. And regardless of who comes to the Lord, whether it's a person who has a background in church or the Bible, maybe not an apostolic church, but they grew up in a Sunday school class and they may have a, a wrong view of the nature of God. They may not see the oneness of God, but they certainly may know Bible stories and they may have read their Bible as much as many of us have read our Bibles. And then there are the people who know nothing at all. So regardless of who that person is, Tonight I want to focus on this idea that we need patience with other people and we also need patience with ourselves. Now, I, I, I've kind of said this already, but in my notes this is where it is. That being born again does not mean that your memory is wiped away. It doesn't mean that a person who first comes to God doesn't have a brain, doesn't have skills, gifting, knowledge of life, experience, even the philosophers that Paul referred to in Acts 17 knew some things about the nature of God from nature itself. But they didn't have a more sure word of prophecy, right? So we need to respect people who come to God and not make them an absolute zero in every way. But we do know that all of us start out being babies in Christ, newborn babes, that we should desire the sincere milk of the word, that we may grow thereby, that we have to be born again. And if you're born again, then there is a certain element of our coming to God that we are newborn. We are like a baby Christian. Even people like Paul, who is a brilliant theologian, had to unlearn some things and learn some others. He said, the things that were gained to me were lost for Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, dung, that I may win Christ. Now, one of the things that we have to unlearn is how we see people, how we see life, because the principles of the kingdom of God are diametrically opposed to the principles of life. I just want to give you a snippet of the teachings of Jesus in Matthew 4, uh, 5.43. Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's the world's way, right? But I say unto you, and that might have been the Jews' way too, that I say unto you, love your enemies. Now if you don't think that's opposite to human nature, you're a wonderful person. I don't really believe you, but you're a wonderful person, right? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. 
if they have road rage, if they cuss you out at work, bless them. Not bless them out, bless them. It's a church way of saying cussing them out without using bad words, right? Do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. So I just wanted to give you, in case you weren't sure if you agree with me or not, when you just look at those two verses in the Sermon on the Mount, that's a lifetime of trying to be like Jesus and overcoming the tendencies of our fallen nature, our carnal nature. So, maturity is a process. Think about how the Lord designed the natural world, world of of trees. Fig trees were common in the Bible, right? So, I wondered how long does it take for a fig tree from the time it is planted until it begins to produce mature figs. And according to several things I read, three to five years. So, no one believes that you can plant a fig tree in the morning and eat figs that night. You know, if you plant any tree or even a gardener, that there is a process that God ordained. You don't microwave plants, right, to growth. It just takes time. And the Bible was written in an agrarian age. And these examples are still true to life today. Last time I checked, we still grow food and we still eat it. So the Lord knew that this would fit for all times. Three to five years, you're going to have to wait around. And I read, and I didn't know this, that in the early years, and there's some variation of this. You can read it for yourself. This is not the Bible, but I read more than one website to just get an understanding of this. That sometimes in the early years of planting, it's common for a fig tree to grow very small green figs that never get larger and they never ripen. And I thought, you know, that reminds me of people that they look like they're maturing, but they're not yet spiritually mature. It's it's a process. So don't get your hopes up. It's a good sign that maturity is coming, but it's not yet. The main crop develops, they say, on new growth. Now, years ago, and I may come back to this later, I taught from John 15 when Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches, and I read something that I had never heard, and I studied this out, that in a grape, grapes only grow on new growth. They do not grow on last year's growth. So my spiritual development and your spiritual development comes from what's new and growing in our life today, not on what happened 20 years ago. Thank God for what happened 20 years ago. But growth happens on a current relationship with God, what you're doing right now. That's where the fruit in your life comes. doesn't come from old growth. Read it for yourself. doesn't work that way in nature. So, there are times when a person or a tree or a person who is like a tree takes longer than normal, longer than expected to grow to maturity. And that's why we need patience and not to be frustrated when people don't meet our expectations and don't grow in God as quickly as we think they should. Jesus told a story about this. He told a story about a fig tree planted in a vineyard. One commentator said it may refer to Israel planted in the field of the world, but it's a fig tree planted in the middle of a vineyard. And 
the owner comes and he says to the dresser of the vineyard, I've come for three years. It's not a three-year-old tree. It's a mature tree. It should be producing figs. I have come for three years and nothing has happened. There are no figs here. I want you to cut this tree down. It's just taking up room. It, it is cumbering the ground. And the man that was dressing it said, give me one more year. Let me dig around it and loosen the roots. Let me fertilize this tree. Give me one more year. Be patient with it. And come back next year. And if there's still no figs, then we'll cut it down. I believe there are times when maybe a friend or a pastor or God himself intercedes on our behalf or we're not producing what we should produce. But God in his mercy says, let me work with this person a little longer. Thank God for this man who said to the owner, just hold on. You never know what's going to happen if you'll just let them keep coming to church. I know they're not doing right, but we're not going to kick them out yet. Let's let them come. Aren't you glad someone had patience with you in that process of trying to become like, become like Jesus Christ? Now, Scripture has one interpretation and many applications, and I believe the interpretation of this parable that Jesus told the simple message was he had, he had been there for three years in his public ministry. And national Israel had not yet brought forth fruit to repentance. And after three years, the Lord was saying, I'm almost through with this nation. If they reject me, if they do not bring forth fruit, I'm going to cut this nation off and I will turn to the Gentiles. And ultimately, that's what happened. Just to give you probably the meaning of that parable, but the application that I wanted to bring out today is that someone said, let me give it another chance. And I'm willing to do the hard work of digging around the roots and applying the fertilizer to see if I cannot get this fruitless tree to really do what it was planted here to do. So when you're thinking about discipleship and this idea of patience with the process, if you think about human development, and, and I ended up putting things in my notes that I intended to skip over for the sake of time. But, but think about, you know, training a child, training up a child. My friend in Bible college taught me the difference between teaching and training. What I'm doing here tonight is teaching. It's, it's a message. But if I do this for 25 years, hopefully that's training. And if you apply it every day, that's training. I've never heard of people call it potty teaching. Ryan and Kenzie did not sit down with Camden recently and say, Now, son, this is what we're going to do. We're going to teach you today potty teaching. And now that you've heard this lesson one time, we know you're going to get it, right? I know you're exceptional and your children were exceptional, but all the kids I've ever heard about, it was potty training. It was a process. And thank God for a process. You know, you were saved and the Lord justified you. And ultimately at the rapture, when the last trump sounds, you're going to be justified. I mean, you're going to be glorified. But everything in between is this process of sanctification, of actually becoming holy, this lifelong process of growing and becoming like Jesus Christ. Amen? So we think about these developmental things for a little child rolling over, crawling, walking, and talking, and 
And some people say there are eight stages of, a, of development in human life and others say 12. But regardless of how you see that, we know that life is a process. And that we're patient with people because we know we cannot teach calculus to most kindergartners. It takes time and their cognitive development has to be at a place where they can learn those kinds of things. Jesus spoke about the stages of maturity. He was making a larger point about how the kingdom of God works. But Mark chapter 4 verse 26, I want you to see this together. I love this parable uh, because sometimes I feel like this guy. He said, so is the kingdom of God as a man should cast seed into the ground. The kingdom of God is like a farmer and he puts seed in the ground and should sleep and rise day and night and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. In other words, this farmer didn't go to college. He doesn't have a degree in agronomy or agriculture. All he knows is this is the seed, that's the ground. You put it in the ground, it grows. I can't explain it. He can't according to this parable. He couldn't explain how it happened. He just knows it works. He knows it works. And then Jesus gives the application of this. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself. So now Jesus is talking about how the seed has life in itself, the kingdom of God. You may not understand how it happens, but it is very powerful, right? But then Jesus now says what happens once this seed germinates and it starts to grow. First, the blade. Please say the blade. There's a little green shoot, right, that starts coming out of the ground. And then the ear. So he's visualizing grain, not American or Indian corn or cow corn or sweet corn. It's the grains of the east. It might be wheat or barley or something like that. But now we see this stalk. It started off as a seed, then a blade. And then now we have green, a head of grain that's there. And then finally, Jesus said, the full corn. After that, the full corn in the ear. That's this process, these stages of growth. A seed, a blade, an ear, and then a full corn in the ear. So if you have a seed, the seed has not reached its potential, but you can be happy about a seed. You can say, thank God that this is a seed and it has life in itself, right? If you're a gardener, have ever grown anything, and I wish I had more time to do that. I love gardening. And, and you see that first little shoot come out of the ground. You can, now, you can eat that. Rabbits will, right? Deer will, but you're not supposed to. You could eat it, but you shouldn't do that. And, and it really has not reached its potential. But you don't go out there and say, Bless God, you know, I watered you. I put fertilizer in the ground. I can't, you know, where's the, where's the results? You celebrate that blade that has come out of the ground because you're thankful. You know that it is part of the process. In case you've forgotten tonight is patience in the process. So you celebrate that development. And then when it gets to the next place of development that Jesus talks about, heads of wheat that are formed on that stalk, but they're green. You can't eat them yet. So you don't curse them because they haven't matured. You celebrate the progress. 
Amen? You don't curse the lack of maturity. And finally, when this stalk becomes, forms heads of wheat, and Jesus speaks about the harvest that is white already to harvest. If you don't harvest it when it's white, it will fall to the ground. So you need to get after it. Don't, don't wait four months. Jesus talks about that in John 4. But now it has achieved its potential. So I just want to remind you that we're like that. And the people that we're going to bring to God are like that. And if we're not careful, we will compare a newborn Christian who's just a shoot of grain. I remember a man, I could call his name, but I want my pastor's wife knocked on his, his motorhome, he was or his trailer, he was retired from Shraff Candy Company, moved to Miami from the Northeast. She knocked on his door. He came to church, got saved, and he got up to testify one night when we used to do that, and he cussed. It wasn't a really bad cuss word, but it was not, you know. And we were all mortified, but as I look back on that, I think that man lived his whole life away from God. He, he spoke a certain language. Cursing was just part of the way he talked. And made me want to just jump up there with him. No, I'm just kidding, you know. Let's join him, make him feel comfortable, right? No. Let's get drunk with him, you know. Just, why? But, but we, now we're really in trouble, right? That is not what Jesus would do. But I think you get my point that sometimes we don't understand the process that God ordained. God did this. And we want everyone to be patient with us. And we should be patient with ourselves. But we need God to help us be patient with people who are not progressing as quickly as we think they should. Because if you're going to make a disciple, you've got to have a lot of patience with the process until that that stalk grows and, and the grain ripens and then it achieves its potential as wheat or as a Christian. And so it is as our walk with, in our walk with God. And that's what the Lord had in mind in this whole disciple-making process. It is a process. And one of the worst attitudes that any Christian can have is self-righteousness. Holier than thou, which is in the Bible, by the way. A condescending spirit. Compared yourself with them and you're much, much more spiritual. And when you had only been in the church X amount of time, you were really farther along than they are. Much more advanced, certainly, than where they are. Why are they struggling? Well, that's why I laid this groundwork. Maybe you were just a fast learner, an early adopter. But maybe you had a background that helped you. And maybe they were aliens. Maybe they were strangers. Maybe they've never even opened a Bible in their life. And they just come from a long way off. And they need a lot of patience. I thought about right here as I was preparing of a child. You've ever seen a child, two children. One child is pitching a fit or being really bad and the other child looks at them as if like, oh man, I've never acted like that in my entire life. 
what in the world is wrong with you? Have you ever seen a child do that? Like, I've seen Christians do that. Forget the time they pitched a fit, acted out, were not like Jesus. So be careful about that, right? Judging other people. We need patience in the process. See, God sees how far that person has come. He sees their desire. He sees their development. Jesus is patient with the process. And you don't have to look any farther than the 12 men Jesus called to be His apostles to know how patient He is. Now, I've referred to this, but I've never officially taught on it, and I'm not going to drill down real deep. Before Jesus chose the 12, He spent a night in prayer, Luke chapter 6. Prayed all night long. And then in the morning, He called His disciples, and of the disciples, He called 12. And I mention this, and I recommend that you purchase the book, 12 Ordinary Men by John MacArthur. He says in this book, and I'm giving you a really short summary, save you having to read it. These are the cliff notes. That the process of discipleship was made really difficult because the flaws of those 12 men. First, he points out, and again, you can study this for a long, long time, they lack spiritual understanding. At times, they were dull and thick and blind, and they couldn't get it. Right? There were times that they lacked humility. Even to the night he was betrayed, no one wanted to wash anybody's feet. They were all talking about who was going to be the greatest. The mother of James and John goes to Jesus and says, when you come to your kingdom, I want one of my boys on the left hand and one on the right. I mean, they're clamoring for positions. And they're the, they're the twelve. These are, not the, these are not the people, you know, that are way out there. These are the twelve. Self-centered, ambitious, self-promoting, jockeying for position. And then they often lack faith. You'd think they'd have faith, right? But four times in the book of Matthew alone, Jesus said to them, O ye of little faith, you're the chosen twelve. You're dull, ambitious, and you don't have any faith. And then they lack commitment. When the crowds were cheering, miracles were being performed, they were thrilled to be followers of Jesus Christ. But as soon as the soldiers came in the garden to arrest Him, the Bible said in Mark 14, 50, that they all forsook Him and fled. And not only that, they lacked power. Do you remember the time that a father brought his son to him and they could not cast the devil out of that boy? And Jesus did. If you think about the raw material with which Jesus had to work, he had his work cut out for him. And we need patience like Jesus had in developing the twelve. And there may be times, you know, I know Jesus didn't second guess himself. But if you would have spent a night in prayer and picked those 12 guys, he might have thought, you know, did I really hear from God or not? I mean, I don't know about Thaddeus right now. He's troubling me. Simon Peter, 
Get thee behind me, Satan. You don't savor the things that belong to God. You savor the things of men. I just had a revelation, Mark's, you know, Matthew 16. Well, sorry, but you just blew it. But here's what I think the beauty of this story is. That I'm really not discouraged because of these 12 men and their flaws. I'm actually encouraged by it. Because sometimes we're like them. And I believe that Jesus chose these 12 ordinary men. So the success of the kingdom of God would not point to who they were, but who He was. That He chose men knowing that if they followed Him, you follow the person of Jesus. You engage in a process. And if you will not check out of the process, if you'll hang in there and be patient with yourself and just never give up following Jesus Christ, you will be like Him. Amen. And I believe in that process, however far we've come along, as long as we're doing our best, the Bible said when we see Him, we'll be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. That's that moment when mortal becomes immortality and corruptible becomes incorruption and we put on this new body. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Of these men, it was said that they saw the boldness of Peter and John and they marveled and took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. And if you hang around Him in prayer, and in His Word, with the sincere heart, He's going to rub off on you. He's going to change you. Just as I spoke last Wednesday night about child to their parents, me to my dad. If that's that person you admire, whether you try or not, admiration is shown by imitation and you'll be like them. You see, time with Jesus Christ is the difference maker. And we're ambassadors of Jesus. You know, Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. I know I spoke about that last night. But it was a process that produced these 12 Apostles of the Lamb. And I, and I know I mentioned this before, but Revelation 21, 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Those guys who lack faith, lack power, lack commitment, were ambitious, were dull, and all of those things that they struggle with but they didn't walk away. I know Judas defected, but the 11 stayed, replaced, you know, the 12th disciple, I believe by Matthias, if you read Acts 1. Some say Paul, but I'm going to go with Matthias. 12 ordinary men. A process and sometimes a very slow process. So I want to talk about two men in the Bible that I think demonstrated this, that Really, this is when this lesson was kind of born uh, in my heart before last Wednesday night. I want to talk to you about Joseph of Arimathea and his friend Nicodemus. Now, Joseph of Arimathea was a ruler of the Jews. He's part of the Sanhedrin, that ruling body of 70 Jewish leaders with a high priest over them. 
And when you read about Joseph of Arimathea coming after the death of Jesus Christ to claim his body, it is referred to in all four Gospels, okay? So we're going to read John together, but I'll just kind of give you a glimpse of what Matthew said. Matthew said, A rich man of Arimathea named Joseph, who also himself was Jesus' disciple, went to Pilate and begged the body of Jesus, and they buried him. Mark says of Joseph of Arimathea, he was an honorable counselor, Mark 15, 43, which also waited for the kingdom of God. He came and went and begged the body of Jesus. Luke says of Joseph of Arimathea that Joseph was a counselor, a good man and just. The same had not consented to the counsel and deed of them. He evidently didn't agree to the crucifixion of Jesus. And the Bible says, Mark, excuse me, Luke 23, 51, he waited for the kingdom of God. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, the synoptic gospels who, that view together the life of Christ, they say this about Joseph of Arimathea. But you know, John, he comes along and he, he's that unique gospel, the supplement gospel who gives us a perspective that the synoptics did not, all inspired by Almighty God for a purpose. John tells us a little more about Joseph of Arimathea, John 19.38. This was our text. And after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, he sought Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him leave. He came therefore and took the body of Jesus. And there came also Nicodemus. And we'll talk about him in a minute. Joseph. So I thought about this. Was Joseph of Arimathea ashamed of the Lord? He was a secret disciple. Was he willing to boldly declare before the Sanhedrin, I'm a follower of Jesus? Or was he, for a long time, kind of hiding back, admiring the ministry of Jesus, following him secretly? He's a disciple. Nobody knows. He's not kicked off the Sanhedrin. He's following, but he's like some people secretly. And, you know, maybe your first impulse is to say, quit being a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. Boldly declare that you're a follower of Him. So what if the Sanhedrin kills you? For however long he knew about Jesus, he was a disciple. But right up until the time that Jesus died, it was a secret. He's a good man, just, waited for the kingdom of God, evidently didn't vote or buy into the crucifixion of Jesus. But the good news is, in the end... He came through, didn't he? You think about, where's the other, where's the 11? Judas is dead by now, are going to be dead. Where are they? They've run off and hid. And here comes Joseph of Arimathea, a very wealthy man. And he comes out of the shadows of being a secret disciple and goes to Pilate, the Roman governor, and he begs the body of Jesus. Now this disciple who really you could say was a slow learner, 
who is incognito does one of the most bold things you can imagine. The condemned man, crucify him. For all the Jewish nation, now Joseph of Arimathea takes his body and puts it in his own new tomb. Sometimes you just have to have patience with the process. And then there's his sidekick, Nicodemus, mentioned in that same passage, right, in John. In the book of John alone, we see three snapshots of Nicodemus. The first, and we're going to read all of these. There was a man of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. And Nicodemus kind of walked up to Jesus by night, so no one would know. He said, look, we know who we are, but we can't figure out who you are. We're the Jews. We're the leaders. We've got this all figured out, but, but we don't have you figured out. God has to be with you because no one could do all these miracles except God would be, would be with him. And of course, Jesus tells him, you've got to be born again. That it doesn't matter that you were born a Jew or how much of an aristocrat you may be. To get into the kingdom of God, you've got to be born again, born from above, born of water in baptism, born of the Spirit in receiving the Holy Ghost. That's the first time we see Nicodemus. Would you just say, came to Jesus by night? That's what John 3 says. Now go to John chapter 7. Now to set this up, the officers came to the chief priests and they talked about Jesus and the officer, the officer said, Never a man spake like this man. And they said, Are you deceived? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed on him? But the people who don't know the law, they're cursed. All these common people following Jesus. But look at us, the Sanhedrin. None of us have ever followed Jesus. Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night in John 3. Now in John 7 verse 50. Nicodemus saith unto them. He that came to Jesus by night. Being one of them, one of the Sanhedrin. He said, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Are you also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And here's Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night. When John talks about him in John 7, he reminds us that, Oh yeah, that's Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night. But he stood up for Jesus and tried in some feeble way, or maybe a bold way, to get them to not judge him. And then, this faith must be growing in Nicodemus. Because we see him again in this story, John 19, 39. And I've already told you about Joseph of Arimathea. But now, John 19, 39, and there came also Nicodemus. John has to tell us again, which at the first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pound weight. Now you can criticize Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus all you want, 
You can call them cowards for being secret disciples. You can highlight their fear of men. But Jesus didn't have fire fall from heaven and kill them. Even though Nicodemus came by night. Even though John has to remind him about it three times. Not really reminds us about it. You know, you ever have a stigma? Oh, that's Nicodemus. He came to Jesus by night. Oh, that was Nicodemus. He stood up for Jesus in the council. Oh, he came to Jesus by night. That's Nicodemus. He came to claim the body. Oh, yeah, he came to Jesus by night. Don't you hate your past to be brought up every time your name is brought up? That your claim to fame? Oh, Nicodemus, yeah, he came to Jesus by night. Or they could say, well, that's so-and-so. I'll tell you his first name, Bill. First time he got up to testify, he cussed. But in the end, no more secret disciple. A lot was happening in Joseph and Nicodemus' life. They had, they had a lot of religious baggage to unpack that we cannot even comprehend. To have been a Jew, to have been a member of the Sanhedrin, that elite ruling body, and to be following Jesus, maybe we can understand why they didn't openly confess Him until after He died. When they did, they were full-fledged followers of Jesus Christ. So you have to look at the end of the story, not the beginning. You need patience in the process with other people and with ourselves.